I'm your host, Anna Agarwal, and this is Indivisible AI. On this podcast, we will be exploring approaches to implementing AI with respect for human rights. This means considering AI not only for its economic potential, but also for the very serious risks it continues to pose to open society across the world. I will be speaking with a number of experts across sectors, ranging from public to private, from technologists to diplomats, to help break down the issues and find solutions for moving forward. In the human rights system, indivisibility means that a challenge to one right impacts the enjoyment of them all. I think it's a great frame for expanding our perspective to achieve much needed balance in the development of AI. Let's get into it and see if you agree. My guest today is Stuart Russell. And when it comes to AI, you might just say you wrote the book. In fact, Stuart is a co-author of the standard textbook that is used to teach AI at universities across the world, in addition to a number of other books intended for general audiences. He's currently a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley and has been a public and leading voice in the AI field for years. In his latest book, Human-Compatible AI and the Problem of Control. Stewart asserts that if we continue to design AI as we have done thus far, it will evolve in the context of superhuman AI to create unintended and most likely disastrous consequences that are out of our control. Thankfully, Stewart proposes an entirely new model that just might save us from this fate. And in our conversation today, we'll be breaking it down. This model is based on designing systems that are inherently uncertain about human preferences, yet deferential to humans in figuring out what those are. So how do we get to a place where this model becomes a standard? I press Stuart to take us through the practical mechanics of what it would look like to actually stand this up. Whether you're a casual observer or have been working in the field for many years, My guess is you will come away from this conversation with a better understanding of how we should, how we must think about controlling systems with capabilities that exceed our own. Hi, Stuart. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into the risks, I would love if you could kick us off with an economic picture of what we stand to gain if we are successful in creating general purpose AI. So let's assume that we succeed uh, in a way that's safe, that none of the, uh, the risks that people are concerned about actually come to pass, uh, and we have real general purpose AI. What would that be like? So one way I think about this is uh, like the transformation that's taken place in travel. And if you, um, if you can cast your mind back 200 years ago and you're, you're sitting, let's say you're sitting in London and you've heard about this new place that was recently discovered called Australia, um, at least recently discovered by uh, English-speaking people, um, then 
uh, it would probably take you several billion dollars or pounds in modern money, maybe 10 years and hundreds or maybe thousands of people working on the project and you'd probably be dead before you got there. So, um, and now thanks to 200 years of technological advances, you take out your phone, you go tap, 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 and you're in Australia tomorrow uh, and it costs you virtually nothing in relative terms. Um, but there are still lots of things that are really slow and expensive, just like intercontinental travel was 200 years ago. Uh, you know, building schools uh, and hospitals or, um, you know, organizing large events. Uh, these things still are, you know, complicated one-offs that require lots of trained people and time and in some cases, um, big organization structures. Uh, and they are out of reach for the vast majority of people in the world. Um, they don't have access to uh, people with the training to, to build a bridge across uh, you know, a wide river, for example. Uh, and even if they did, they can't afford them. So um, if you could have access to general purpose AI, then um, you have access to the ability to essentially do anything that the human race knows how to do, uh, except to do it quickly and uh, at extremely low cost. Because the, the, the money all goes to pay people. Uh, and if you squeeze people uh, out of every point in the supply chain, uh, then the cost is reduced to you know, the cost of scarce materials and land, which, uh, which we can't produce more of very easily. So that would mean that we could raise the living standards of everyone on earth to whatever living standards our current understanding of science and technology can provide, uh, which is, I would say, pretty good for most people who can afford it. Um, that would be about a tenfold increase in GDP for the world. And if you want to, if you want to put that into uh, net present value calculations, as economists like to do, uh, it comes out to somewhere in the ballpark of ten quadrillion dollars net present value for uh, creating general purpose AI, uh, which is quite a lot of money. Right, uh, and, you know, it makes it makes the the billions of dollars that people are so excited about uh, investing in AI look absolutely minuscule in comparison. Right, it's uh, yep. six orders of magnitude less than the size of the prize. So here is this picture of what we massively stand to gain, and and yet there are. Many risks attendant to this that must be solved for for that to be realized in any terms of value. So, can you walk us through the standard model of developing AI that is currently predominant, and what's problematic about that model, particularly as we move towards a more sophisticated form of AI? So the way we've been thinking about AI almost since the beginning um, 
which as you mentioned is called, we call it the standard model uh, in the book, is to create machinery that optimizes uh, a fixed, usually mathematically specified objective that, that we humans supply to the machine. And that sounds very reasonable, right? As a, as a way of getting what you want, you know, you specify what you want and then the machine does it. Um, and it's, it's a model that's actually been very successful in areas like control theory, where, you know, the, the systems that fly our airplanes and that manage our chemical plants uh, and so on are based on control theory. Uh, and there, you know, you specify a cost function and you, uh, you derive algorithms that can minimize that cost function in order to keep, keep the plane flying straight or, or keep the chemical plant within its operating parameters. And um, the, the drawback is that when you get out into the real world, the sort of more uh, open structured environment of decision-making outside the lab or outside the chemical plant, or the you know the airplane flying by itself. Uh, when you start even thinking about self-driving cars, but certainly domestic robots, um, uh, agents that manage the electrical grid, uh, and so on, specifying the objective becomes extremely difficult. Um, and uh, this is not a new point, right? We've known for thousands of years that if a genie gives you three wishes, your third wish is always going to be, please undo the first two wishes because I've ruined everything. Right. Um, you know, the legend of King Midas, the sorcerer's apprentice, uh, and so on, so on, so on. The, um, it's extremely difficult. And, and it's partly because, um, the metaphor, uh, of giving objectives to machines simply doesn't work the same way as giving objectives to people. And I think this is, this is the, maybe one of the sources of the mistake, right? We're, we're comfortable with the idea that I could ask somebody for a cup of coffee. And when I ask them for the cup of coffee, I'm not saying, okay, this is now your sole life's objective. Right. Um, so the communication of, of desires to other human beings is a very different kind of thing from the specification of, of objectives in machines. When you give them a machine an objective and say, this is the thing that you're supposed to optimize, you're basically saying, and nothing else matters. So if you ask a machine to get you a cup, a cup of coffee, you are literally telling it, Nothing else matters, right? The lives of the other customers in Starbucks don't matter. Uh, the cost of the coffee doesn't matter, even if it's 35 euros a cup. Um, and this is not, uh, this is not uh, an, obviously an accurate representation of your entire preference structure. But if you don't convey your entire preference structure, the machine is free to mess with any part of the world that you didn't mention in the objective. And that includes messing with the lives of the other customers in, uh, in Starbucks. Um, and, uh, you know, if you ask it to help restore carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, then it's free to mess with the pH of the oceans or the oxygen content of the atmosphere 
uh, or anything else which might be essential to life even. Um, and uh, so in, in the long run, as machines become more and more and more capable, when they're pursuing a fixed objective, they will have more and more and more negative side effects on the world. And it'll also be harder and harder to interfere, right? They're pursuing the objective. Um, they will take preemptive steps to prevent interference with the completion of the objective. And can you talk briefly about how this problem of the fixed objective has played out in the context of social media algorithms, which are not general intelligence, but uh, nonetheless reflect issues uh, that, as you mentioned, with taking this approach? Yes. So um, the way that social media algorithms work, so if you're using YouTube or uh, a news feed, um, the algorithms are deciding what you see, what content is recommended, what the next video is, what articles appear in your feed. And um, they're doing this in order to optimize an objective, which is specified from the point of view of the interests of the corporation. And, uh, for example, it might be just maximizing the probability that you will click on the next item so that they can derive revenue from it. And you might think, well, that's not completely unreasonable because uh, to get you to click on things, they have to send you things that you're interested in as opposed to things you're not interested in. Um, but that's actually not the solution to the problem, right? That's not the optimal solution for maximizing click-through. The optimal solution for maximizing click-through is to turn you into a maximally predictable consumer of content. Uh, so it's not just the next click, but it's the whole future of clicks that the algorithm cares about. Uh, and so it's important to change you as quickly as possible into uh, a more predictable version of yourself, whether it's uh, you know a, a more extreme taste for uh, for violent pornography or um, a, a more uh, more convinced consumer of uh, extreme conspiracy theories, or uh, you know a more outraged reader of of stories about environmental degradation. Uh, anything the algorithm can do, it doesn't care. It doesn't even know that you're a human being, right? You're just you're just something with a propensity to click, and it will change that that propensity uh, in whatever way it can to maximize long-term revenue. Um, and I think you know we're gradually seeing some realization dawning uh, among the various platforms that this is the logical consequence of designing the algorithms the way they have. Um, that has created uh, you know, a huge mess politically, democratically, uh, with people's mental health. Um, and uh, uh, there's really now, I think, uh, uh, a sense that we have to change this. Uh, the sooner we change it, the better. So to mitigate these types of consequences from 
unfolding in the design of AI going forward, you proposed an alternative approach, which you describe as provably beneficial AI or just beneficial AI. Can you uh, explain this approach to us and also how you came about it after uh, so many years of following a different approach, which, um, you know, we've, the standard approach has come to characterize the industry thus far. What sort of uh, predicated the shift in your thinking? Uh, okay, so I'll first explain uh, what the change is. So it, if it's the case that we are unable to specify objectives completely and correctly, then uh, it seems essential to get away from that assumption in the design, right? We've we've effectively created a design methodology that we cannot operate correctly. Um, so we have to have something different. So the machine is going to need to know that it doesn't know what the objective is. You know, we still have preferences about how the future should unfold. Uh, we may not know all of them, um, but but basically, you know. There are things. There are futures we like and futures we don't like. The future we don't like, you know, is where everyone's dead. The future we don't like is where everyone is enslaved to the machine. The future we don't like is, is where, um, you know, everyone is infantilized uh, as they are in Wooly. Um, and uh, so, if that's the case, that that the machine is going to have to make decisions in the absence of knowledge of the objective, um, there still has to be uh, something towards which the machine is working. And so the, the, the first basic principle is that what humans want the future to be like is the machine's objective. But the second principle that you know, has to come along, you know, holding hands with first principle, it, and is that the machine doesn't know what those long-term human preferences are. Um, and it's that second principle that actually, uh, I think, will keep us safe. So what, what we want in the long run is to, well, we're not going to be able to avoid, I think, creating machines that are more powerful than human beings. What we want in the long run is that even though they are more powerful, that they never ever have power over us. Uh, and so because the machine knows that it doesn't know what the objective is, um, that actually creates very different incentives for how the machine behaves. For example, before making a change to the world that it's not sure is going to be beneficial because it lacks information about our preferences, it would need to ask permission. And uh, and that's something that machines in the standard model would never have an incentive to do because they know the objective uh, and therefore they know that what they're doing is correct. So asking permission doesn't make sense. Um, and in the extreme case, a machine will, uh, you know, in this new model will allow itself to be switched off because it wants to avoid doing whatever potentially bad thing 
uh, is the reason why the person would switch the machine off in the first place. Um, so even though it doesn't know what it is that it, that it might be about to do wrong, uh, it knows that it wants to avoid doing that thing. And so uh, it will allow itself to be switched off. And this is a mathematical theorem, right? We can actually show that the incentive to allow yourself to be switched off comes directly from the uncertainty about the objective uh, and the fact that the human is in some sense the owner of the objective. Uh, so so this, this approach, I think it's, it's the beginning of a different way of thinking about AI. Um, and the mathematical name that we've come up with for the framework is called Assistance Games. So it's a game because um, it's a decision problem in which there are multiple decision-making entities, at least one machine and at least one human, right? There could be more of each, but that's the basic situation. Um, and it's an assistance game because the whole purpose here is to design machines that are, that are beneficial to humans. And when you think back about, you know, the history of AI, that wasn't in there right? The, you know, AI was all about, let's build machines that are intelligent in their own right, pursuing whatever objectives they happen to have in them. Um, and you have to wonder, you know, why did we think that was something we wanted, right? Uh, we, you know, we are human and we should build machines that are beneficial to humans. Is there a distinction there between reinforcement learning and inverse reinforcement learning or does that speak to something else um yeah that's that's one way of of looking at it so reinforcement learning is um a family of algorithms that learn to produce uh behavior that maximizes some reward and for that to work you have to know the definition of the reward function in order to supply that reward signal to the machine. Uh, and in all of these algorithms like AlphaGo and AlphaZero and so on that, that learn to play these games, there's a separate piece of code that we wrote that tells the machine when it's won and when it's lost. Okay, and that's the objective. Uh, so it's, the objective is there, it's built in, it's mathematically well-defined. Um, and we can do that for games because the objective is part of the definition of the game. But when you try to take that into the real world, you realize that the real world isn't a game, right? The, you, you, can't look, you, know, you, you can't look at the bottom of the box and, and see what the objective function is supposed to be and how you win the game because the real world doesn't have that. Um, and so inverse reinforcement learning goes the other way around. Rather than taking the reward or the objective as given, we take behavior that we observe, so typically behavior by a human, and then we try to infer what is the reward, the objective that's being optimized by this behavior. And it's a component of what we're trying to do with, with provably beneficial AI. So if our behavior is uh, intended to reveal our preferences under this paradigm, how might we or should we think about decoding human behavior, which is messy and complex and that oftentimes can be described as irrational, all of all of the above. Can Impenetrable. We, yes, yeah, so we could go on there. I mean, can we yeah. <laughs> select 
around our self-sabotaging or problematic behaviors um, or perhaps substitute our preferences for those that are revealed by people we've extolled <laughs> or admired? Or does that kind of secretly bring us back into the realm of, of specifying objectives? So we love your thoughts there, maybe from a, a behavioral economist point of view or however you might think of those issues? Yeah, I, I, I think this is a great set of questions. Um, so I, I think the first point is to be absolutely clear that um, we are not proposing that machines learn to copy human behavior, right? Um, and so uh, you know, any, any more than a criminologist learns to be a criminal, right? They learn to understand the motives of criminals, but that doesn't mean they copy their behavior. Right? In fact, they might be able to teach the criminal how to achieve their objectives without impinging negatively on everybody else. Um, and uh, that's, that's sort of how the AI ought to behave in those circumstances. Um, but the, the connection between uh, what we might call true underlying preferences for the future um, and I'll come back to what I mean by that. Or well, you can ask me another question. Um, the connection between true underlying preferences about the future and the behavior we actually exhibit is a pretty complicated one. Um, so, you know, just to give a simple example, uh, when Lisa Dahl, who was, you know, one of the best human Go players in history, when he's playing Go against uh, AlphaGo back in 2016, um, you know, obviously he makes some losing moves. Now, if you thought that he was rational, then the only conclusion would be that he wanted to lose the game because he made these losing moves. Right? But that would be an incorrect conclusion. The better conclusion is that he wanted to win the game, but his cognitive limitations prevented him from playing perfectly. Um, and so in order to interpret his behavior, we have to have some model, doesn't have to be perfect, but some model of human cognitive limitations. Uh, for example, that you can't, you know, you can't look ahead indefinitely far into, into the future of a game of complicated game like Go. Um, and then there are obviously other manifestations of imperfection that are more glaringly obvious, right? The, the thing you do where um, you lose your temper, uh, you do something, you immediately regret doing it. You say, oh, I'm really sorry. You know, I lost it over that. Right. So it, among humans, we understand this. We observe each other's behavior. We don't take it literally uh, as a direct expression of uh, our underlying preferences. And, um, and I think, in fact, as, as humans grow up, I think this is one of the main uh, roots by which we acquire our own preference structures is essentially by understanding what is driving the behavior of other human beings and kind of taking it on board as our own, as part of our own preference structure. Um, so coming back to the example of your, you know, uh, the, the people you uh, look up to or idolize uh, and you do, I think you do, and those could be your parents or your your teachers, uh, you know, you take on um, preference structures. 
from that process of absorption, uh, which is, I think, a very different picture from the sort of old-fashioned behaviorist, you know, everything is driven by biological imperatives of pain avoidance and, and hunger avoidance and so on, um, which I think wouldn't wouldn't get you very far in explaining the huge variety of human preference structures. Um, and I think the cultural route, um, although, you know, evolutionarily it may have had biological origins millions of years ago, I think the, the cultural route of preferences being passed on through culture and upbringing uh, has, has long since um, become uh, somewhat separated from the biological imperatives. So another related to challenges of identifying our own preferences and how those change over time and are kind of a living entity always evolving under this approach, we would also need to figure out how to account for the preferences of everyone, account for uh, multiple humans, if you will, as you've described it. And so are we looking for new ways to aggregate and intermediate our shared preferences when we're thinking about uh, beneficial AI? Or should we look to law, uh, which, you know, has historically been where we've balanced trade-offs when multiple interests are concerned. How do you think about um, the collective element when we're talking about preferences? And I think it could actually be helpful here if we ground this discussion with an illustration of some of the potential applications that we're talking about, um, you know, when it comes to AI, beneficial AI. So, you know, are we talking about per everything from personal robots to enterprise to consumer to government um, AI applications? And uh, if so, which is what I'm assuming, how do we begin to think of the multiple preferences issue, multiple humans issue? Uh, yeah. So it's. Um... It's a pretty old problem, as you could imagine, right? Yeah. <laughs> so moral, you know, moral philosophers have thought about how you make decisions on behalf of multiple people for literally thousands of years, and you know, utilitarianism uh, became a popular thread in in the 18th century, but you can trace it back uh, at least 2,500 years uh, in in various uh, in various cultures. The idea that um, basically everyone counts, uh, and maybe everyone should count equally. Um, and that's a, you know, historically that's a pretty radical idea because it used to be, I count and I'm more, I'm bigger and more powerful than you. So that, there we go. Right. Um, and it's manifested in, you know, in dem dem democratic processes and systems, um, which is in some ways an example of the kind of approach I'm, I'm proposing for AI. If you think of the government as the AI system, um, what does it do? 
it collects preferences every so often from the people. Uh, and then, at least in theory, it's supposed to uh, learn from that preference collection exercise a bit more about what people want and then try to implement it. So it's supposed to act on behalf of everyone. And, and we, you know, one person, one vote, uh, we treat everyone equally. Although, you know, we don't give votes to uh, children under 18. Um, and there are, you know, lots of people proposing lots of other uh, exclusions for voting as well. Um, but the basic idea is not is not inconsistent with what I'm proposing that AI should do. Um, now the you know the history of thinking about how this preference aggregation takes place, right? I mean, it's sort of it's unavoidable that there be some kind of preference aggregation. You can only take one decision, right? Um, and it isn't going to be the decision that everyone. Uh, would prefer, right? If everyone wants to be the ruler of the universe, well, they can't all be the ruler of the universe. Sorry, you know, at most one person can be the ruler of the universe. Um, and, you know, if you think about a concrete example, it might be, okay, let's come up with a policy that uh, will actually restore carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and head off catastrophic climate change. So, that policy inevitably will impinge uh, negatively on the interests of fossil fuel companies. Um, and, uh, you know, there may be additional trade-offs, like you might uh, have to allow for sea level rise to continue for some period of time um, because, you know, a more rapid uh, reversal of climate change effects could be destabilizing, I don't know. Um, and so that means that people living in coastal cities will suffer more, um, but you're reducing the overall risk to the, to, uh, to the climate and, and humanity at large. Um, so you're always going to have to be making these trade-offs. And you, the utilitarian view, I would say, is constantly under attack uh, from other forms of uh, uh, other threads of moral philosophy. But what I try to do in the book, Human Compatible, is not so much say, okay, this, this form of preference utilitarianism, utilitarianism is correct, and all you guys who don't agree with it, you're all idiots, right? It's, let's see how far we can go with this, because it's, it, it seems to me that what it's trying to do, and what what I think the AI community should be trying to do is we should be building machines or decision processes that reflect the preferences of humanity. Now, having, having said that, I think there are, there are still some really difficult, knotty problems involved in, in making this work. Um, and the most difficult is, is I think this, this idea that people's preferences are not constant, stable, uh, intrinsic to the person. They're actually um, uh, plastic. They can be modified by external influences. And of course, you know, we came by these preferences by this uh, process of of learning, of being influenced by society, by family, by peers, uh, and so on. And 
So it's reasonable to ask, well, what about putting in process, putting into motion processes that um, actually change people's preferences? Uh, so not just satisfy the preferences that people have, but actually try to change people's preferences by by education, by uh, persuasion, by social media influencing, by who knows what, um, so that uh, in some sense they are better. I guess the view I hold right now is that AI researchers should not be in the business of saying what the preferences of humanity ought to be. But uh, we should be in the business of saying, how do we make AI systems that reflect the preferences uh, for the future that humanity has? And there's a separate decision, separate argument, uh, about whether we ought to try to change those or fix those preferences. Or, but that's not our business in our role as AI researchers. And so whose business do you think it would be? I mean, uh, obviously, a normative framework needs to be in place to come to a decision as to some of the questions that you've brought up. And you've been in a number of policy conversations. Do you see, do you feel optimistic about using human rights or um, another approach to sort of guide that should question. And, you know, so you wrote a piece a bit ago about how moral philosophy uh, is predicted or you predict that it will take a bigger role in in the tech industry. And, um, you know, curious if in that prediction comes to mind an idea of, okay, well, should there be something that guides the content of that philosophical exercise that's perhaps standardized across humanity as having been, I don't know, democratically agreed upon or um, elevate. Well, I don't even know what that, what that necessarily means anymore, but as you know, or, or is it actually that we should by design leave it, uh, leave it open-ended, leave it an exercise to be negotiated in the context of the company, uh, the different stakeholders that are, at the table responsible for that exercise of uh, determining where the normative line comes down? Uh, well, this is a very difficult, <laughs> very difficult question. It, it might well be, and, and this is something I think that utilitarians argue, that there's nothing wrong with, you know, with, with the idea of rights and uh, following moral principles when people try to make an argument against a utilitarian analysis, they often are just arguing against a straw man version of utilitarian analysis. You know, so they'll, in fact, I was just in a discussion earlier today where someone was arguing um, against the dropping of the atom bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima um, saying that it was the result of a short-term utilitarian analysis. But that's a contradiction in terms, right? If it's short-term, then it's not paying attention to 
the whole utility function. Right, so it's a short-term stupid analysis. I think is the right way of describing it. Not <laughs> utilitarian analysis, uh, and um, so uh, over and over again, um, the the discussion gets muddied by misunderstandings of what the you know what the positions are on the, on each side of this debate. Um, but we do have to. I mean, I think the, the there is an urgency. Because um, the capabilities of AI systems and their global deployment are increasing extremely rapidly. Um, and as we see with social media, they already have global effects. And there wasn't any kind of intelligent uh, thinking through of the consequences of that deployment uh, on, on this uh, social scale. And so to that point, what are the next steps? Accepting the premise of beneficial AI, how do we go about either redesigning or building from the foundation that we have today um, for applications that are already in use to establish a norm for AI development that seeds the development um, or seeds the conditions for beneficial AI in the future, because I doubt that it's, we get to keep things as is. And then when the general intelligence comes along, we all of a sudden switch, switch to, to yeah. this new way. I think it's something, and I think you've spoken about this in a, mm. in a different context, but it's important as to the norms that we establish in the use cases that we have now in order for it to be a well-oiled machine or ready to go as, as the, because only the going to become harder as intelligence continues to develop. Yeah. And I think the, you know, I, I think you're right. The, the vested interests and the, the sort of legacy momentum get bigger and bigger uh, as time goes by. Um, so the, uh, I think it's unlikely that we can just get it, people to drop everything and start again. Uh, you know, sort of throw away the, their revenue generating AI systems uh, and wait for new ones to come along. So I, I think at the moment, the, uh, you know, the urgency is on our side to actually provide replacement technology. Um, and, you know, one way of looking at it is, is to look at the chapters of the AI textbook and each of those chapters, whether it's search or planning or uh, decision theory or reinforcement learning, you know, each of those chapters assumes that the objective is fixed and known. And uh, but those are the chapters on which the technology that's out there is built. Uh, so we have to actually rewrite those chapters to incorporate this broader foundation. So the the standard model, the special case where the objective is fixed and known, is a special case, right? Uh, so certainty is a special case of uncertainty. Um, and we need to broaden the foundation to allow for uncertainty about the objectives and, and then figure out, okay, what does that mean in the context of, for example, search algorithms or reinforcement learning algorithms or planning systems or whatever? Um, and that means a lot of research, a lot of hard technical research on coming up with appropriate 
mathematical problem formulations and uh, new kinds of algorithms and, and their theoretical properties, correctness, soundness, complexity, and so on. Um, I think the biggest difficulty is in designing the protocol because um, the key characteristic that differentiates what a new model AI system looks like from an old model AI system is that at runtime, there's a flow of information from the human or whatever other sort of client there is uh, to the machine. Uh, that flow of information about preferences. And what form does that take? What is a, you know, what is a natural, nice, clean sort of information transfer protocol uh, that we could use um, to, uh, to implement practical systems in the real world that, that do useful stuff? Um, and you can sort of see it, you know, it happens in places already, right? So when you go on the airline website, uh, you know, and, and you have your frequent flyer profile, uh, they build up all kinds of preference information about you, right? Do you, uh, do you prefer to travel business class? How much are you willing to pay extra for it? Right. So they're, they're inferring lots and lots of stuff in order to know what promotions to send you or when to offer you a special deal or whatever they let, they know, they know, do you like to sit in the aisle seat? Uh, you know, what's your, where is your home airport? Um, do you prefer direct flights or do you mind having stopovers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of that is there. Um, I would say we just lack generally accepted um, abstract protocol frameworks for, for how this happens and how algorithms can both acquire the information and also make decisions uh, about what to do when the information is still missing. And so do you think the funding for that work needs to first flow to research through academia before it can be something that private sector development takes up, you know, for the, on the basis of new AI startups or existing companies uh, building out their AI strategy? Or do you think that there's an opportunity for this to be developed in the context of private AI systems, new AI companies? What are your thoughts on the order of events um, and funding such that we are on the path to where the big players, the multi-billion at some point, trillion dollar companies are considering and designing for AI in this way? Uh, I think that's a great question. To me, um, it seems pretty clear that there's a strong economic incentive to do this the right way because the systems, systems that are designed this way are just going to be better for all kinds of reasons. These are better AI systems. And so there should be a strong economic incentive for companies to build it. Um, having said that, they typically uh, are not doing a whole lot of basic research. I mean, you're, uh, you know, some of the big companies are, um, 
and maybe they can come up with solutions to um, to some of the, the technical questions involved in, in developing this research agenda. But my guess is for the vast majority of companies, you know, what they've done historically is download packages or buy software packages that implement some kind of AI technology, adapt them to their own purposes and deploy the result. Uh, and until there are, um, you know, templates and packages and, and you know, general uh, redeployable technologies that incorporate these ideas, um, it's not going to get disseminated widely in the AI industry. Um, it's a start that people are aware of it because then at least they'll think twice before optimizing around some objective without thinking about the side effects of doing so. Right? So I, I think awareness is, is the first step, but really, practically speaking, um, we, the theoretical research and algorithm design and framework design has got to be done. Uh, and I think that's mostly going to come from academic research. And what are your thoughts about regulatory decisions that should or shouldn't be made today to help support the development of beneficial AI? Um, so, you know, for example, the currently the EU is looking to take a what it calls risk-based approach to AI regulation, where depending on the level of risk framed either in terms of rights or safety that an AI application propose, uh, that an AI poses, that it will trigger certain requirements as to documentation and accuracy and robustness and, and what have you. And, and so mm -hmm. implementing that type of framework, do you see any challenges that that poses, or do you think something like that would be compatible to with the development or even help the development of uh, these types of systems? I think in principle, it could be very helpful. Um, and, but in practice, it's, I think it's much more likely to end up looking like traditional safety engineering kinds of things. So if it doesn't pose an immediate physical risk of death, right. uh, then it doesn't get into the top category. But, you know, what about posing an immediate risk of dissolving democracy globally? Right. right? Well, you know, and I think, you know, from what I've seen of draft regulations, the, the kinds of systems that can do that, right, just by conversing through screens with humans, um, would be considered low risk, even though, you know, and, and so they wouldn't be regulated at all, even though they can uh, they can dissolve the, the entire global uh, system. And um, you know, an, another mistake I see regulators making is this idea that um, somehow you can isolate, you can take the software system and test it in isolation that there's a way you can measure, you know, its accuracy, uh, you know, train it on some data, test it on some more data, get get an accuracy figure on the test data and say, okay, 99.2% accurate, great, off you go, right? And this is a complete misunderstanding of 
how most real AI systems actually work and, and what the consequences of, of an AI system are. Because, uh, you know, think about, for example, uh, uh, a system that um, decides whether to accept uh, an application for insurance and decides on the price to charge for that process. Right. right? For, for that insurance coverage. And um, when such a system is deployed, uh, first of all, uh, you can't necessarily predict what the, the applicant pool is going to look like. But secondly, the existence of that system actually changes the applicant pool. In order to understand the effect of a system, you have to model its entire context. Um, because once it's put in place, it will change the context. And so you can't test in isolation. And this is um, uh, this is a much more complicated problem than I think the regulators appear to understand. The stakes here when we talk about general intelligence are, are existential. And one of the arguments um, or uh, responses to that argument has been, well, it's fine. Let's just switch it off. <laughs> and you've written and spoken as to why that's problematic for several reasons. And you said it, one thing in which, or dynamic, which I think is particularly interesting, quote, there are some systems that can't be switched off without ripping out a lot of the plumbing of civilization. And I think uh, pretty pretty evidently, Facebook is an example of one of those systems. And so and my question is, if we succeed in implementing beneficial uh, AI, what does an off switch look like when it comes to complex socially integrated systems? And particularly, and this is a, an example that you uh, bring up in the book, when considering the impact of things like blockchain, which a super intelligent AI could use to protect itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is interesting. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a complicated question because, uh, as you say, you don't necessarily want to, to switch off the entire system. Right. And, and I think that would, that would not be a well-designed system if that was the only choice, right? The only choice is continue, let it wreak havoc on the world or switch it off entirely, you know, leaving, uh, millions of people uh, in, in dire straits because they were relying on uh, whatever services the system was providing. We ought to be able to, uh, rather than just switch it off, simply uh, express our uh, disagreement with some uh, intended plan of action that the system is engaged in. Uh, and then um, it the right outcome would be that it continues to provide whatever essential services it's providing to people, but it abandons the thing that it was about to do that we don't like. Um, so that, that really means, you know, another way of thinking about it is it's a whole, that we design it so that's a whole gradation of interventions short of switching the entire system off. Um, but if it comes to it, we can, we can do that. Right. So, uh, th and this is true, not this, not just for, you know, AI systems that could get out of control. 
right? This would be true for uh, all kinds of engineering systems. You don't want to uh, deploy engineered systems, whether it's water or electricity or whatever, which at some point have to be switched off, but on which people depend for their lives. I'd love to shift gears a little bit as we wrap up to talk about AI and the future of work. So AI can open up this world of opportunity, but that also requires us to reconsider how we think about work because many of the jobs um, that we currently have are going to be taken over by, by these systems. And yet our current system isn't great and that there are many people both in blue collar and white collar jobs that aren't particularly happy uh, with what they're doing uh, from that maybe being reflective of a drone repetitive quality of work. So I personally believe that we have an opportunity for AI to intermediate more meaningful forms of work for more people. Is that a fallacy? Do you see that as uh, potential if we get some of these other questions right along the way. And one thing that I think is really interesting, so I know that you've been um, involved in work as to futures mapping between economists and sci-fi writers over the past few years, thinking about and mapping out these issues. And what I think is interesting about now is that we've had the experience of COVID where people have been put out of work not to do necessarily with AI, but just due to the fact that the economy has been shut down. So in some ways, the uh, innovation and development of new forms of work online that's happened in the wake of that, it may provide a microcosm for what a future, what the future of work uh, looks like as, as these AI systems become more sophisticated. So in conclusion, would really just love some of, because I know these are issues you've been thinking about, love some of your thoughts about that. And particularly if it, those have changed at all, given where we are now post-COVID uh, relative to to before. Yeah, so this is um, an entire podcast in itself. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to go be able to go into much depth, but, you know, and and... I'm sure all the listeners are aware that there's a huge debate going on in economics. Um, you know, is this just like previous technological revolutions where there might have been some disruption, but afterwards, you know, more people have more and better jobs, and uh, and um, or is this really different? And I think the argument that it's really different is pretty simple. We've over the last couple of uh, industrial revolutions, we've replaced most physical labor. And now, it, with the information revolution and then general purpose AI, we're going to replace most mental labor. And then what's left? It's not physical. It's not mental. What else is there? Right? Um, and so I think the, you know, the, the ball is really in the court of those who think that everything's going to be fine to explain what else it is going to be if it's not mental and it's not physical. Um, but it isn't necessarily the end of the world. And a lot of the mental and physical labor is pretty repetitive. And, um, you know, if you'd asked people 10,000 years ago 
to to read a science fiction story where you know in in the future everyone was going to go into uh, a building you know often buildings with no windows um, and do the same thing three thousand times a day and do that for every day until pretty much they're ready to die they would just think this is nuts right why would we ever ever have a future like that you know we surely we're not that stupid yeah um, but that's a future that we got and we have used most people as robots uh failing to uh engage or take advantage of the vast majority of of human skills and interests uh in the kinds of jobs that we have had people doing um and Basically, those jobs can be done by robots, and soon uh, they will be done by robots. Uh, and so there is an opportunity uh, if we can figure out how the, the next phase of our civilization actually has a place for humans. And that's what concerns me, is that the default... Right? The sort of status quo trend is simply that you know more and more jobs become automated. Uh, more and more the population feels like they have no uh, no economic role, no no value that they can contribute. And um, that's a very unhealthy direction. It you know concentrates uh, income and wealth in capital as opposed to labor and increases inequality. So if you're going to have a different direction and it's not mental or physical labor, I think it's going to be person to person. You might call it emotional labor, but working with individuals to make their lives better. Um, and I think this is a place where humans have a competitive advantage, partly because we want other human beings to do this and partly because human beings have uh, an intrinsic advantage over machines in the sense that as a human being, you know what it's like to be a human being. Um, put very simply, you know what it's like to hit your thumb with a hammer and no machine will ever know that. Um, and that gives you uh, a big advantage. Some people call it, you know, in the empathy business, but uh, it's much more general than that. Um, but to prepare for that future, to make those kinds of jobs be high value, high status, and and uh, uh, that means they have to be effective. But we haven't figured out how to make each other's lives better, how to bring up children to be happy and uh, and live fulfilling lives. There's a whole gap um, that we have to fill with science uh, and education and professionalization. And all of that takes decades to do. So we better get a move on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great note on which to end it. Stuart, thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure. Pleasure, Ina. Nice talking to you. <laughs>